Turn with me to Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read from there. But before we begin this study of these precious truths given here in the book of Luke, I'd like for us to pause and remind ourselves of some of the basic tenets of our Christian faith and doctrine that Jesus is showing to us, both with his life and also through the many things that he accomplishes as he travels about preaching and teaching and healing the people. One of those basic tenets of doctrine that is an essential element of our faith is that God truly is sovereign and that he is providentially superintending all of the many things that take place on this earth, reaching his hand into and guiding the paths of mankind toward the purposes that he intends and all to his glory and his praise. And while, yes, this understanding about God, about who he is and what he does within our often troubled lives is hard to grasp and sometimes often perhaps hard to accept, it is nonetheless absolutely true. God's hand is firmly moving within and guiding all that takes place at every moment throughout every day. And that's been so from the beginning of creation, and it'll be so until God calls creation to a close. God is sovereign, and he is providential. And one other truth that we need always to be reminded of is that the Lord Jesus is the one within the Trinity of God who exercises that divine power. Yes, all three members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, are all continually exercising sovereignty and providence. But from the mysterious truths that we read here within these scriptures, Jesus is said to be the one within that Trinity who carries it all forward. Listen to these words in Colossians chapter 1 that tell us that. There we read that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Did you note those words? He, the Lord Jesus created all things for himself and for his purposes. And yes, again, God the Father, God the Spirit were always also involved. But it is through the Lord Jesus that all things were created for him and by him. And in him, it tells us here in these words, in him all things hold together. And so simply put, his powerful hand holds together every moment of every day and he continually guides all of it towards the purposes that he intends. And he tells us essentially those same words in Hebrews chapter 1. There he tells us that the Lord Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now again... I'll repeat myself. It's by the guiding providential power of the Lord Jesus that all things in existence hold together. 
And that includes not only the sun, the moon, and the stars. It means the very air that you and I are breathing right at this moment. The Lord Jesus is holding it together. Difficult words to understand, but they are nonetheless true. And folks, please also know that even though as Jesus lived here on this earth, fully human, like you and me, walking alongside men, teaching them, and healing them from their diseases, all the while, though he intentionally withheld some of his divine power, beneath the surface of his humanity as he walked among men, Jesus truly was still, ever and always, the omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful God of all creation. Now, I especially want us to keep all that in mind as we read about all these intimate moments that he spent with his disciples and with the common and ordinary people of his day. So then turn with me to Luke chapter 7, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. Now when he, this is the Lord Jesus, had concluded all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to the centurion, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. Now as we consider this encounter that Jesus was involved in here in this circumstance, may I say to us again that while yes, it's often difficult for us to recognize and to accept that God truly is providential, that he orchestrated all that was taking place at this moment, that he has a plan that he's working out for each of us in every place throughout the earth, and that he really does reach his hand in to our circumstances, and he is carrying forward that plan every moment of every day. And folks, that is what was taking place here within these words that I just read. In reading the commentary of Matthew Henry on this particular passage, I was reminded that it's part of God's plan to do as we spoke about earlier, and that is to place ministering servants in some of the most unlikely positions and places so that they can help us, so that they can minister to us. Now, we know that he does that with his angels. He tells us that in Hebrews chapter 1. He tells us there that the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? 
Think about that, folks. God has appointed certain of his angels to be close at our side, my side, your side, to minister to our needs and to protect us as we go throughout the day. He's doing that right now. And God also, though, uses people in much the same way. He very strategically places special men and women within our daily lives to minister to us and to provide for us and to protect us. Right people in the right place at the right time. And that certainly does seem to be the case here with this centurion commander. It's said of him that he loved the nation of Israel. This is a conquering soldier. And yet it's said of him here that he loved the nation of Israel. Folks, we know from these scriptures that love such as this does not just take place within us. God puts this kind of love within us. It tells us here in these words that this centurion loved the nation of Israel so much that he built them a synagogue. And the historians of that age tell us that the cost of building that synagogue was probably borne personally by that centurion. He was the right man in the right place at the right time to bless those people there in Capernaum. And he did. And in the process of blessing them, he earned the affections and the respect of those town leaders. And that was very important. These circumstances remind me of a similar time in the life of Israel. All the many years that they spent in captivity in Babylon. At that time, the prophet Jeremiah had told the Israelite people to live peaceably under the control of their captors. To not be fighting with them, but to live peaceably under the control of their captors. And if they did that, then they would be well treated. And then God intervened so that Jeremiah's counsel would take place. As those Israelite captives did submit to their captors, they were treated well. Most notable was Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. In reading the account of their lives, you can easily see that as those young men were first taken into captivity, a chief eunuch was assigned to them, and he treated them so well. He was a well-placed person who would take care of and protect God's people. And then as the years went by in their captivity, except for those very special times when God allowed their faith to be tested, those men... Those men were so very well treated by their captors. God blessed the whole nation of captive Israelites by reaching in and providing these men with positions within the government of the Babylonian captors. You recall that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were put in as governors of certain areas. And Daniel was what we would compare to a prime minister just underneath Nebuchadnezzar. They were all well-placed servants of God to bless his people. And it didn't just happen. This was God's plan being worked out. Folks, too often with our indomitable American spirit, we don't submit to captors. It's our nature to always be fighting for freedom from our captors. And at times that might be the right thing. But as Jeremiah warned his people, such resistance is not always God's will. It's not always God's will. Sometimes it's God's will that we live within the circumstances provided. And we see that taking place here in this passage 
the people of Capernaum seemed to understand that they needed to accept their circumstance with the Romans. And God was blessing them for it, especially in his provision of a kind and generous local ruler. Now, some of the more skeptical historians tell us that generous treatment by these Roman rulers was done for political purposes, to gain favor and to help keep peace uh, within the towns. And that may have been true in many cases. But here, here with this particular centurion commander, the testimony that's being given about him tells a far better story than just a political advantage gained by that centurion. It tells a much better story. We're told here that the servant was dear to the centurion. Now his servant may have come with him, may have been a long-time family servant. We don't know that. But most likely, as it was in most of those circumstances there in Israel, most likely the servant was a local Jew. And perhaps this servant was a Joseph type of person. You recall how Joseph, the son of Jacob, had been sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers. But God worked his time of slavery together for good. For not only Joseph, but consequently the whole nation of Israel. God inserted his guiding hand into all those circumstances that took place with Joseph as he served as a good servant and everyone was blessed. Joseph himself eventually rose to a position that was second only to Pharaoh. Second only to Pharaoh. And we can also see the evidence of God's guiding hand within this particular circumstance that involves this servant of the centurion. While these scriptures don't tell us, it seems good to believe that this servant might have been also one of those well-placed messengers of God to win the heart of that centurion so that that centurion would then treat other Israelite people well. Folks, God surely is in the business of blessing his loved ones. And this all just seems so much of a well-positioned pieces of a puzzle that were being put together to assure the good treatment of God's people. That's what God does. That's what God does. And he's doing that in your and my life today. Now we're also told here that a strong measure of faith was present within this centurion. And again, it may be an assumption, but perhaps it was that same servant. If that servant was a strong believer, he might have influenced this centurion to also believe. But in any event, he had a strong faith. This centurion had a strong faith. And then also, best of all, these words speak of how Jesus himself testified to the centurion's strong faith. Folks, of all of the witnesses to my faith, I want most of all for Jesus to be the one who will testify on my behalf. He's the one that I want to please most with my faith. Because, folks, I know that I'll be standing before him at some point in the near future. Now note also in these words the depth and the strength of that centurion's faith. I love the way the Lord worded this. It's a soldier-like manner of faith. It's not only strong, it's simplistic and it's matter of fact. The centurion said, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. 
Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But you just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. This centurion's faith was simple, and it was matter of fact. And you can also note great humility within his heart. Great humility. He believed himself unworthy to be even near to Jesus. Folks, humility can be feigned. And we often do that ourselves in order to gain favor from someone. But from Jesus' response to this man, we know that the centurion's humility was real. Remember the words that are so often spoken in these Gospels, that Jesus knew the thoughts of the people around him. And that was also true with this centurion. Jesus is ever and always the omnipotent God. And he was always able to know what others around him were thinking. And that was so with this centurion's thoughts. He knew the truth behind the man's words. He knew that he wasn't just feigning humility. He knew this man's humility was real. And he was greatly honored by it. He was honored by it. Let me ask you, as you go to the Lord, are you humble as you approach Jesus for his favor? Are you humble? Folks, our humility, our esteeming Jesus as our most high God, as Lord of Lords, as King of Kings, and especially as our one and only Savior, that greatly honors Him. I don't know how you all pray, but I pray silently. I don't pray out loud. Sometimes I pray out loud. As I'm maybe traveling in my car and nobody else is with me, I'll start praying out loud. But I pray to myself, God knows my thoughts. He knows your thoughts. He knows whether or not you are humbly coming to Him in your sweet hour of prayer. And humility is the way to please God's heart. As we read in the book of Revelation, when this earth and all of time and existence is called to a close, we and everyone else, we and everyone else will humbly bow at the feet of Jesus. And folks, listen, we will all cry out in a loud and passionate voice. Glory, honor, and praise be to you. We'll do that. Scripture tells us that we'll do that. Philippians 2. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on the earth, those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus truly is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is our most high God. And the humility with which we acknowledge him as being our Lord will mean everything, will mean everything to us, both as we walk through these days of this life, but especially when we stand before him on that great and terrible day of judgment. How awful... It is to think of the many times that we have treated Jesus as if he had no honor and no lordship over us. In your times of prayer, can you think of times when you have had very little humility? You have not honored him? Unfortunately, too often I have treated him as if he really didn't matter at all. I didn't say those words, but that's the way I behaved. That must never be. 
That must never be because there surely will come that day of reckoning and our disrespect and our dishonoring of Him. We're running the risk, folks, of being judged with the judgment that Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter 7. There He tells us, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody that sits in the pews of churches today will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Just calling out, Lord, Lord, will not necessarily get us there. And so he tells us, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in thy name have cast out demons. And in thy name have done many wonderful works. And then I'll profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Difficult words, folks. Difficult words. Humility is the first order of honor and respect due to the Lord Jesus. And if we do not have humility towards him, we have no part in him. And again, the other thing that Jesus marveled about with this centurion was his deep and abiding faith. And remember those words in Hebrews eleven six, where he tells us, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Simple faith is the first and most important requirement of you and me as we enter into and live within our relationship with Christ. And the more simple and the stronger our faith, the more we're able to trust in Him and to receive the blessings that are in Him. And it's our faith that gives us access to those blessings. In Christ, we are truly children of the King. And as His children, all of the magnificent splendor that is due as Son of God is ours to be had and to be enjoyed. And we have only to receive it. But to do that... You and I must have faith. It is faith and faith alone that allows the grace of God then to flow. And the stronger that faith, the stronger the flow of that grace. But we must also be warned by these words that the flow of God's grace can also be restricted by our lack of faith, sometimes to only a trickle. And that happens too often in my own life. Does that happen in your life? I get distracted, and sometimes that flow of grace slows to a trickle. That should never be allowed to happen. You and I must accept our own part in the responsibility of receiving God's grace. Jesus clearly and often spoke those words, be it according to your faith. Those are words of truth. Words of truth. The amount of grace and mercy and blessing that we receive seems often to be directly proportional to our faith. And if you and I will only and simply believe, then God's grace will freely flow upon us. And that is such a wonderful thought. This centurion here was a man of simple faith. And his faith is demonstrated to us here for us to learn from him. The centurion was a man of simple faith. And because of his simple faith, God's blessing of healing was able to freely flow upon his servant and to heal his servant. And those same blessings of healing can flow upon those that you love and you care for. 
do you have someone that you're praying for continually? All that's required is faith, simple faith. My question is, do you, do I have that kind of simple faith? Because God wants us to. God wants us to have that kind of simple faith. These words again in Hebrews eleven six as we close. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Let's pray.